0: What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Today is July 11th, so 7-11, which is, in numerology, I'm pretty sure 7-11 means to like let go of things in the past, don't hold on to anything, um, don't beat yourself up, and just to move forward. So today is a good day. I've been having a good day so far. A lot of things have been aligning for me. And speaking of numerology, we are going to be doing that next week. But this week's episode is astrology. And I'm sure my listeners, you are all probably wondering when I was going to do this topic because I'm always talking about astrology in my episodes, which is funny because the show is called Professional Skepticism, but I'm like a diehard astrology fan or believer or whatever you want to call it. So I don't really have any updates for you today. Let's just dive right in. So we'll start with an overview astrology is a form of divination that seeks to determine the influence of stars, planets, and other celestial bodies on the lives of earth-dwelling beings. So if you're not familiar with the term divination, it can be described as the practice of discerning the hidden significance of events and foretelling the future, or the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. And so That's just kind of two different ways of saying the same thing. But some other forms of divination include psychics, like fortune-telling, and the tarot, which I will also be doing an episode on because I also practice tarot. Historically, astrology was treated as legitimate scholarly knowledge. At one point, astrology and astronomy were inseparable. Astrology was also connected to scholarly subjects such as alchemy, Meteorology and medicine. During the Enlightenment era, though, it somewhat lost its merit as a scholarly pursuit. In the 19th century, with the adoption of the scientific method, researchers began performing astrological experiments and found that there was no evidence proving that astrology is real. Therefore, fascination and interest in astrology declined until the 1960s, which I feel like over the last couple of weeks has been a theme in our episodes. A lot of these topics I've been talking about have seen a revival in the 1960s which is fun. So early evidence of astrology includes 25,000 year old cave drawings which indicate attempts to record and predict astronomical cycles including like movement of the constellations and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the right way to word that but you know what I mean and like the lunar cycle. According to Wikipedia this was the first step towards recording the moon's influence upon tides and rivers and towards organizing a communal calendar. Farmers addressed agricultural needs with increasing knowledge of the constellations that appear in the different seasons, and used the rising of particular star groups to herald annual floods or seasonal activities. So that was a quick overview. Now I want to get into the history of astrology, and I'm going to just kind of give highlights, if you will because there's kind of a lot that I could go into here, and I don't really want to talk too much about the history, though I think it's important. I kind of want to talk more about astrology and its applications today. So according to Britannica, astrology originated in Mesopotamia around the third millennium BC, which is the years 3000 through 2001 BC, and then it spread to India, but it developed its western form in Greek civilization during the Hellenistic period. Astrology entered Islamic culture as part of the Greek tradition and was returned to European culture through Arabic learning during the Middle Ages. So that's a little summary, like executive summary of what we're going to talk about. And I have a couple of facts about some ancient civilizations, which we know by now, if you're a solid listener, that I did not pay attention in history class. So all of this kind of stuff, like I know the, you know, buzzwords, like the names of all the stuff, but it's like the timeline and Locations and geography in my brain are not the best. So I just did some basic um, research here, and we're we're holding space. We're creating a safe space for people who were absent-minded during (laughs) their adolescent years in school, and we're learning together, okay? So according to Wikipedia, the oldest undisputed evidence of the use of astrology were records documented by the first dynasty of Mesopotamia. This is the years 1950 to 1651 BCE. The Babylonians viewed celestial events as possible signs rather than as causes of physical events. So I'm thinking more like omens or like suggestions versus like the hard factual predictions that some of these ancient civilizations used the sky and stars to predict. The system of Chinese astrology, and this is also from Wikipedia, the system of Chinese astrology was elaborated during the Zhou dynasty. And I am just going to go ahead and say now, there's a lot of words in this episode that I had to look up the pronunciation. And you guys know how those videos are, like, sometimes they're not really spot on. So I um, watched a couple here and there. I tried to find videos of people like from these cultures actually saying it. So hopefully I'm saying them right. And if I'm not, I'm so sorry. Please feel free to correct me, but please be nice. So like I said, the Zhou dynasty, this was the year 1046 to 256 BCE and flourished during the Han dynasty, which was 2nd century BCE to 2nd century CE, during which the yin yang philosophy, the theory of the five elements, heaven and earth, and Confucian morality formalized the philosophical principles of Chinese medicine, divination, astrology, and alchemy. The ancient Arabs also lived their lives in accordance with the belief that celestial bodies directly impact earthly occurrences, and after the conquest of Alexander the Great in 332 BCE, Egypt became Hellenistic, The city of Alexandria became the place where Babylonian astrology was mixed with Egyptian decanic astrology to create horoscopic astrology. And I think I said decanic, right? I think they say deacons. That was another one I was having trouble figuring out the pronunciation. So if you're not familiar with horoscopic astrology, it's a form of astrology that uses a horoscope, a visual representation of the heavens for a specific moment in time in order to interpret the inherent meaning underlying the alignment of the planets at that moment. So if you were a teen girl in the early 2000s, well, I wasn't even a teen girl in the early 2000s. I was just a preteen, I don't know, tween. But you had those like ridiculous magazines that had your horoscope in them and you were reading them. I mean, we still get horoscopes to this day. Like, I still use CoStar and look at that every day, and that's a horoscope. So it's looking at, like, the specific moment in time of where the celestial bodies are in relation to where we are on the planet Earth. Alexander the Great is also responsible for exposing Greece and Rome to astrology through his conquests. So that was ancient civilizations in a nutshell, and then we kind of moved to medieval times, and this is when differing perspectives and understandings of of astrology became more apparent. As we entered the Renaissance, many people were practicing astrology, and the distinction between astrology and astronomy was still not yet clear. According to Wikipedia, advances in astronomy were often motivated by the desire to improve the accuracy of astrology. Love that. In the Enlightenment era, people lost interest in astrology as scientific theories and experiments proved it has no scientific validity or explanatory power. So people were like, well, we've been trying to figure out astrology. We're finding out more about astronomy. Can't really prove astrology. These people that are like court astrologers, their predictions aren't coming true. It just seems like a bunch of hearsay. Let's move on. Now I'm going to bring up Carl Jung, which I wanted to say that I have mentioned Carl Jung before and I didn't realize I was saying his name wrong so I would like to correct myself. I can't remember exactly which episode it was. I want to say it was maybe the castration episode but I only found this out that I was saying it wrong recently maybe like a month ago um, and I meant to make a a statement but here it is coming up in this episode again. So I'm just going to correct myself now. And I do apologize for that. I believe, yes, he was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who founded analytical psychology. And he developed psychological astrology in the early 20th century. So we've kind of jumped ahead again. but um, So according to Wikipedia, psychological astrology or astropsychology, which I just love the way that sounds is the result of the cross-fertilization of the fields of astrology with depth psychology, humanistic psychology, and transpersonal psychology. And this, I also, this is a quote from Wikipedia, and I just felt like they summed this up really well, so I'm just going to read it to you. Jung was influenced by Plato's theory of ideas or forms. In his research into the symbolic meaning of his patients' dreams, conversations, and paintings, Jung observed recurring mythical themes or archetypes. He proposed that these universal and timeless archetypes channel experiences and emotions resulting in recognizable and typical patterns of behavior with certain probable outcomes. Jung claimed to observe a correlation between these archetypal images and the astrological themes or traditional, quote, gods associated with the planets and signs of the zodiac. He concluded that the symbolic heavenly figures described by the constellations were originally inspired by projections of images created by the collective unconscious. Jung wrote, astrology represents the sum of all the psychological knowledge of antiquity. So I just thought that was really well put because I was like going to just re-explain his psycho or astro psychology perspective, but I felt like that kind of just lumped it up perfectly for me while also kind of explaining some of his other work. He also proposed the synchronicity theory, which I didn't know. Like I've always talked about synchronicities instead of coincidences. Like maybe like when you're talking about something and then you start seeing it or hearing it or it comes into your life more often or you have like a thought and you're like, hmm, what are the odds of that? And then you turn around and it happens to you. I call those synchronicities rather than coincidences because I feel like, I mean, we do create our own reality. and. I don't know if I'm explaining the synchronicity theory quite correctly, but I didn't realize that that was like a specific theory, and I also didn't realize that Carl Jung was responsible for it. I do, now I want to read you guys the synchronicity theory, just so I'm not like talking out of my ass. Okay, so synchronicity is a concept first introduced by analytical psychologist Carl Jung to describe circumstances that appear meaningfully related yet lack a causal connection. In contemporary research, synchronicity experiences refer to one's subjective experience that coincidences between or coincidences between events in one's mind and the outside world may be casually, causally unrelated to each other yet have some other unknown connection. And Jung held that this was healthy and even necessary. It's like, you know, I feel like that's okay when you're just like, oh, wow, like life is aligning for me. But then he did say that it can become harmful within psychosis. And I hear a lot of people talking about spiritual psychosis, like when things start lining up so perfectly and everything's going your way. And you start seeing, quote, signs or angel numbers and omens and whatever. And you're like, either... Everything is going really well and I'm really in touch spiritually or I'm going into psychosis. I think that's what this is referring to. And I also saw where it said that this is unlike magical thinking, which we talked about, I believe, in... I think this was the episode, The Unlucky 13. So that, I believe, is where we talked about Carl Jung. But I just wanted to bring that full circle. Also, I remember learning about Carl Jung in psychology classes I actually only had one psychology class and one sociology class because I went to school to be an accountant because my midheaven is in Capricorn Ugh. but I don't really know if people are like it seems like a lot of his theories and things that he talks about are a little woo-woo which is like right up my alley and I am interested in reading more about some of the things that he has to say but he's also like a psychiatrist and a psychologist or whatever. And so I don't know if he's like well-respected or if people just kind of disregard him or anything like that. So if you guys know if he's just kind of like some quack as like people would say it, that would be cool to know. Um Cause I did find this article that was called the mysterious Jung, his cult, the lies he told in the occult, but like I'm into the occult. So I'm not really like, that doesn't really scare me away, but the word cult isn't really great. Um, So, I mean, I'm going to do some more research into him, but I'm just curious, like, what the general consensus is on this man. So, that was basically all I have for history. Now let's talk about the types of astrology. So, we have Western astrology, and then we have the variations of the Eastern astrology. And if you're here in the U.S., you're probably more familiar with Western astrology as we know it. Western astrology is focused on the celestial body's positions at a particular point in time, so typically this is the exact birth time and place of when someone was born. So if you've ever had someone do your birth chart, if you've ever had me do your birth chart, we need to know that exact time of when you were born, and the location. According to birthastro.com, Western astrology uses equatorial zodiac, which is regulated to the equator points, And it also uses tropical zodiac, which considers Earth to be the main point of attraction and the celestial bodies to be in relation to it. Western astrology is established based on the movement and approximate locations of spiritual bodies like the sun, moon, and the planets. And they're also acknowledged by their location in the 12 houses. So I'll go into more detail about the planets and the houses and like what the sun and the moon and the rising and the midheaven and all that mean here in a little bit, but I want to introduce you to Western and Eastern astrology first. So I saw this website called indaastro.com and it had like a comparison between Vedic astrology or Hindu astrology and Western astrology. So those are like the two main ideologies or practices of astrology. And then within that you have like more people do different methods and whatever. So, and when I say Eastern astrology, I just kind of Made it the Western and Eastern, but under Eastern is the Vedic astrology, which we're about to talk about, and the Chinese astrology. According to Indahastro.com, Western astrology is based on the idea that the Sun comes back to the same point of vernal equinox post completion of its circle around Earth as it appears from the Earth. Vernal equinox is the celestial event during which the Sun is overhead the equator the line that divides our earth into two equal parts. The vernal equinox is generally on March 22nd each year when day and night are of equal length. According to Western astrology, that is the point in time that dictates the first sign, Aries, further followed by the rest of the signs. However, with reference to the fixed stars, vernal equinox moves westward opposite to the yearly motion of sun at a rate of around 50.26 seconds of arc annually, which is also called procession of the equinoxes or Ayanamsa. Ayanamsa. And I looked these up too. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering this. This is because Earth's axis also rotates and completes one rotation in about 26,000 years. So that's the way Western approaches it. Let's just go right into the Vedic or Hindu astrology. So Vedic astrology takes into account this slight shift in Earth's position, which has shifted the vernal equinox point of sidereal zodiac to about 25 degrees west from the zero degrees vernal equinox of western astrology system. Instead of a tropical year, the Vedic astrology is based on the sidereal year, which is the time taken by earth to revolve around sun with respect to the fixed star Chitra. My lisp is coming out. The fixed star Chitra. And this duration is apparently 20 minutes longer than the tropical year. Due to this phenomenon, The Aries of Western astrology keeps drifting away farther from the Aries point of Vedic astrology at a rate of 1 degree every 72 years. At present, this difference has elevated to almost 24 degrees in the past 2,000 years. The last time when Aries of Western astrology and Vedic astrology were on the same plane was approximately 285 AD. The system of astrology that uses the fixed zodiac is called Sayana, while the one that uses movable zodiac is called Nirayana. Feel free to let me know if I'm doing it wrong. Vedic astrology is believed to be more rational and reliable. The signs and planets generally have similar interpretations and symbolic meanings in both Western and Vedic astrology, but Vedic astrology has more accurate calculations and detailed methods involved and is thus more reliable. So that's from IndaAstro.com. And Vedic astrologers not only assess the natal chart, but also the dasas, the periods of different planets transiting through different signs and their influence in real time. Also, Vedic astrology is based on moon signs rather than on sun signs. And this is from the same website. The sun moves through signs in about a month, while the moon changes its sign in about 2.25 days, which is why predications based on moon are more close and accurate since our moods and circumstances change frequently. The moon reflects the mind and emotions. This is why interpreting the moon's placement is believed to be more relevant in predictions and analysis. Vedic astrology also speaks more to our karmic cycle and our dharma or life path. So I thought all of that was really interesting. And I did throw in some facts about Vedic astrology later on. But for the most part, I'm going to be talking about Western astrology. I just wanted to acknowledge that there are differences there. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Chinese and East Asian astrology, and I got this from China Highlights, and it was written by Facility Jiang. So the Chinese zodiac is represented by 12 zodiac animals. In order, they are the rat, the ox, the tiger, the rabbit, the dragon, the snake, the horse, the goat, the monkey, the rooster, the dog, and the pig. And I'm going to tell you the characteristics of each of these animals so the rat is quick-witted, resourceful, versatile and kind, the ox is diligent, dependable, strong and determined, the tiger is brave, confident, competitive and unpredictable, the rabbit is quiet, elegant, kind and responsible, the dragon is confident, intelligent, enthusiastic, the snake is enigmatic, intelligent and wise, the horse is animated, active and energetic, the goat is calm, gentle and sympathetic. The monkey is sharp, smart, and curious. The rooster is observant, hardworking, and courageous. The dog is lovely, honest, and prudent. And the pig is compassionate, generous, and diligent. The Chinese zodiac years begin and end at the Chinese New Year in January February. That's what it says there. Each year in the repeating zodiac cycle of 12 years is represented by a zodiac animal, each with its own reputed attributes. Chinese people believe that a person's horoscope personality and love compatibility are closely associated with, his, with their Chinese zodiac sign determined by their birth year. I have the tiger as my Chinese zodiac animal, which I love and I have a big tiger tattoo on my tummy, so I feel very aligned with the tiger. So now let's talk about each of the signs. And now we're going to be going deeper into the Western astrology that I'm familiar with and probably a lot of you guys are familiar with. Um, And I got all of these from CoStar. And if you've ever used CoStar, you can probably vouch for the fact that CoStar can be very, like, brutal and unforgiving in some of the things that they say. So don't take any of this to heart. I just like CoStar because I just feel like it's, like, to the point. And sometimes it's like funny. I think some people get like a little butthurt or like take it a little too seriously, but let's get into it. So Aries is the first sign in the Zodiac and it's from March 20th to April 19th. The sign is the Ram and it's a fire sign. It's a cardinal sign and it's ruled by the planet Mars. And when I say cardinal fixed or mutal- mutable, those are the modalities, and I'll explain what the modalities are after we get through the signs. So Aries have no filter, they get angry and then forget why they were angry. They think everything is a game that they can win. They'll do anything on a dare, and they are easily bored. The Taurus is from April 19th to May 20, and the sign is the bull. They're an Earth sign, they're a fixed sign, and they're ruled by the planet Venus. Taurus just wants to cuddle their homebody. They're very all-or-nothing, there's no in-between for them, they basically wear the same outfit every day, and they hate big changes, and this sounds like my bestie Aaron. (laughs) So Geminis are from May 20th to June 21st, their sign is the Twins, and they're this is an air sign, it's a mutable sign, and they're ruled by the planet Mercury. Geminis are charismatic, they use humor as a crutch, they could talk to a brick wall, They use arguments as flirting, and they know a little bit about everything, and that sounds about right to me. So did Aries. I'm sorry. I love my Aries, but y'all are fucking crazy. So the Cancer is from June 21st to July 22nd, and their sign is the crab. Cancer is a water sign, a cardinal sign, and is ruled by the moon. Cancer are very sensitive. They seek comfort. They forgive but never forget. They only have one boundary, but it's very firm. I don't really know what that means. And they take on other people's problems. And yes, I would agree with all of that. I dated a Cancer. They're very emotional and like very sweet and all about the person that they're with. Just not for me. All right, Leos. They're from July 22nd to August 22nd. Their sign is the lion or symbol. I keep saying their sign. Their symbol is a lion. And this is a fire sign, a fixed sign, and they're ruled by the sun. Shocker. They have to be the center of attention. So Leos exude warmth and creativity. They're a little bit vain. A lot of bit vain. They have really big personalities. They want to stand out, and they're interested in luxury. The Virgo is from August 22nd to September 22nd, and their symbol is the Virgin, whatever that means. And they are an earth sign, a mutable sign, and they are ruled by the planet Mercury. Virgos need to feel useful. They have a quick fix for everything. They're judgmental, but with good intentions. They have exceptional spatial awareness. And they have a million ideas per second. The Libra is from September 22nd to October 23rd. Their sign is or symbol is the scales. This sign is an air sign. It's a cardinal sign, and it's ruled by the planet Venus. Libra hates being alone. They have really good aesthetics. They are conflict avoidant. They see every side of a position. They're prone to fantasy, and they can't make decisions. And our Scorpio friends are from October 23rd to November 22nd. Their symbol is the scorpion, duh. And this is a water sign, a fixed sign, and it is ruled by the planet Pluto. Scorpio's primary emotion is betrayal. They look cool in a leather jacket. They're okay with uncomfortable silence. They can't, you can't be sure if they're serious or joking. And they have eyes that look into your soul. The Sagittarius. This is from November 22nd to December 21st. And the symbol is the archer or the centaur. And this is a fire sign, a mutable sign. And this, this sign is ruled by Jupiter. So Sagittarius has no indoor voice. Yes, I agree. They form opinions off of pure emotion. I want to disagree, but I think this is also true because I get so caught up. I'm like, okay, oh my God, like I have to completely turn my life around because I'm feeling bad. And then once I'm not feeling bad anymore, I'm like, why was I thinking that? Sagittarius is obsessed with self-improvement. I can agree with that. They wield their truth like a blunt weapon. Yes, and they are the friendliest person at the party. I would also agree with that. The Capricorn is from December 21st to January 20th, and their symbol is the sea goat. And the Capricorn is an earth sign, a cardinal sign, and is ruled by the planet Saturn. And Capricorns are full-grown adults by the age of 6. So yes, I would agree with that. Capricorns are very serious and responsible. They're your responsible friend. They're motivated by duty. Takes a while to warm up to people and they repress any emotions that get in the way of success. And now we have Aquarius, which is the rarest zodiac sign. I don't know why. Maybe because of the time between, I don't know, it says January 19th to February 18th. So maybe that's less time. But uh, their symbol is the water bearer. And the Aquarius is an air sign, a fixed sign, and is ruled by the planet Uranus. Aquarius is purposefully esoteric. Yes, they don't do feelings, just concepts. They actually believe in conspiracy theories. They're more in love with humanity as a whole than individuals. They always feel like an outcast, and they fetishize personal freedom. Finally, we have the Pisces, and that's from February 18th to March 20th. The symbol for Pisces are the fish and Pisces is a water sign, it's a mutable sign, and is ruled by the planet Neptune. So somehow Pisces are both 5 and 50 years old at once, agreed. They think everything is a sign. They can't remember if they dreamt it or it actually happened. They are excessively romantic, prone to fantasy, and they have no boundaries. Okay, so In the 13th episode of Professional Skepticism, we talked about Ophiuchus, and I don't think I was saying it right. I saw online it's pronounced as Ophiuchus, and this is the 13th sign of the Zodiac, and so I wanted to clear this up a little bit, and this is from Wikipedia. So Ophiuchus is one of the 13 constellations that cross the ecliptic, and it has sometimes been suggested as the 13th sign of the Zodiac. However, this confuses Zodiac or astrological signs with constellations. The signs of the zodiac are a 12-fold division of the ecliptic, so that each sign spans 30 degrees of celestial longitude, approximately the distance the sun travels in a month, and, in the Western tradition, are aligned with the seasons so that the March equinox always falls on the boundary between Pisces and Aries. Constellations, on the other hand, are unequal in size and are based on the positions of the stars. The constellations of the zodiac have only a loose association a loose association with the signs of the zodiac and do not in general coincide with them. In Western astrology, the constellation of Aquarius, for example, largely corresponds to the sign of Pisces. Similarly, the constellation of Ophiuchus occupies most of the sign of Sagittarius, so it's from the 29th of November to the 18th of December. Um, That's when Ophiuchus is, I guess. And the differences are due to the fact that the time of year that the sun passes through a particular zodiac constellation's position has slowly changed because of the precession of the equinoxes over the centuries from when the Babylonians originally developed the zodiac. So this is what the Vedic astrology was talking about with taking into consideration that change. Also, if you weren't familiar, as Earth travels around the Sun, the nighttime side of Earth faces a different part of outer space. Because of this, different constellations are visible depending on the time of year. But certain constellations can be seen all year long in some places because they are above the North Pole or below the South Pole. And this is from... Science A to Z dot com, which is like for children, but I just thought I would explain that if you didn't know, because I just felt like we needed a little bit more clarity in what I was saying about Ophiuchus. Okay, and so I wanted to tell you guys the time frames for the Vedic signs, so you can be like, oh no, I thought I was an Aries, but I'm a Pisces or whatever. So an Aries. In Vedic, astrology is from April 13th to May 14th. A Taurus is from May 15th to June 14th. A Gemini is June 15th to July 14th. A Cancer is July 15th to August 14th. A Leo is from August 15th to September 15th. A Virgo is September 16th to October 15th. Libra is October 16th to November 14th. Scorpio is November 15th to December 14th. Sagittarius is December 15th through January 13th. So this makes me a Scorpio. Capricorn is January 14th to February 11th. Aquarius is February 12th to March 12th. And Pisces is March 13th to April 12th, which makes my dad a Pisces. And Amanda is also a Scorpio. And I think I'm like pretty close to the cusp of Scorpio and Sagittarius anyways. So I already like kind of knew that. I have a lot of Scorpio tendencies. People always guess I'm either a Scorpio or a Pisces, and I'm like, that's so weird. So let's get into some of the aspects that are in a birth chart. So according to the Astro Twins, when an astrologer interprets your chart, she blends the meaning of each planet, the house it's in, and the sign it's in to map the obstacles or gifts you'll face in this lifetime. So there's the big three or the big four, and the big three are your sun, moon, and rising, and then your fourth is your midheaven, or midhaven, midheaven, I don't know. I have a Sagittarius sun, a Pisces moon, and an Aries rising, and my midheaven is Capricorn. And fun fact, I think for like a week I accidentally said on Instagram, like in my bio, that I had an Aquarius rising. I'm definitely not an Aquarius rising. Ruby's little bells are jingling. So let's talk about your midheaven. So your Midheaven is located at the very top of your chart at the 12 o'clock mark, and the Midheaven represents the highest point in the horizon that any planet can reach. This is the cusp of the 10th house of career and public image, which speaks to your professional path, social standing, and public persona. So whenever they talk about the Midheaven, I think it's like typically, they talk a lot about the 10th house and the Capricorn sign, um, because I think... Capricorn in the tenth house are related somehow. Um, I have a Capricorn in midheaven, so this means that I am powerful, serious, successful, and commanding. And my ideal career paths are to be a financial advisor, a property manager, or a CEO, which is hilarious to me because I literally have an accounting degree and I quit my job as an accountant to be an artist and a podcaster and a personal assistant and a dancer. So. Here I am. <laughs> but hey, I mean, I'm still kind of like being a boss bitch, and I would like to make this thing bigger than it already is. And one day, professional skepticism is going to be huge. And I'm going to be able to hire people, provide platforms to people, and put spotlights on cool things and build a community, which I'm already working on now. So, yeah, like that's pretty CEO of me. Let's talk about modalities. So, the cardinal modality. If you have a cardinal sign, they're referred to as the leaders, trendsetters, and idea people of the zodiac. They're visionaries, they're able to tolerate new beginnings and change, and they're able to make things happen out of thin air. Fixed signs are hardworking and are great at carrying out the plans manifested by the cardinal signs. They love creating to-do lists, they're trustworthy when it comes to actioning plans, and they thrive off momentum and they're focused on dedication. The mutable signs are older and wiser, they know all things must come to an end, and their role is to prepare everyone for the changing of seasons. Regardless of whether these endings are good or bad, mutable signs have the power to enforce an intelligent and positive spin on any situation, bringing it to a sound conclusion. Most flexible and adaptable of the three sign types. And I got all of that from bedthreads.com. So let's talk about the planets. And I got all of the planet information from astrology.com. So the sun represents the self, one's personality and ego, the spirit, and what it is that makes the individual unique. It is our identity and our face to the world. The sun also speaks to creative ability and the power of the individual to meet the challenges of everyday life. The sun spends about a month visiting each sign and takes a year to journey through the 12 signs of the zodiac. It is masculine energy and rules Leo in the fifth house. The moon is the planet of emotions, fluid, momentous, churning from within. Mood swings, instinct, how we feel about things, and how our feelings affect others are all influenced by the moon. Whereas the sun gives us our spirit, it's the moon that gives us our soul. It symbolizes mother and the relationship between woman and child. Fertility, pregnancy, and childbirth are also governed by the moon. The Moon spends roughly two and a half days in each sign and takes 28 days to circumnavigate the zodiac. It is feminine energy and rules cancer and the fourth house. So you might, if you are a person who mis- menstruates, your cycle might line up with the Moon cycle. That's pretty common. Mine does. So the planet Mercury why do I keep saying Mercury? The planet Mercury, Mercury? I don't know. It's the planet of communication. So communication, intellect, and awareness are all within Mercury's domain as our logic and reasoning, our manner of thinking, and how we create and express our thought processes. Mercury is about a quick wit, quick thinking, possibilities, opinions, reasoning, and the ability to rationalize things. Mercurial energy can be good or bad, but it will certainly be energizing. This planet also prompts us to move forward from one thing to the next and to get answers on both a physical and psychological level. Mercury's energy is both dexterous and perceptive. Speaking, writing, books, online communications, and learning are all within this domain, and this planet implores us to express ourselves often and well when Mercury goes retrograde, the appearance of traveling backward, our communications will be challenged. And I'm going to talk to you guys about retrogrades and what to do when each of the planets are in retrograde. So don't worry. And I think we've all heard about Mercury being in retrograde. So Mercury is never more than 28 degrees from the sun. It takes about 88 days to complete its orbit of the sun. It is neither masculine nor feminine and assumes the gender of the sign that it's in. It rules both Gemini and Virgo and the third and sixth houses. Venus is the planet of love and money. Venus is all about pleasure, especially pleasure shared with someone else. This planet concerns itself with love, romance, and harmony in our emotional attachments, marriages, friendships, and other unions, including business partnerships. Venus is content to spread happiness and tenderness, all the while teaching us how to love and appreciate others and the things that we possess. The arts, so music, dance, drama, literature— and a sense of the aesthetic fall within the realm of Venus. So Venus tells us to indulge in our senses, revel in the beauty of the world. This planet is inextricably linked to refinement, culture, charm, and grace. Venus also deals with the pleasure we derive from our possessions. So luxuries, jewelry, painting, expensive cars, good food and drink, a beautiful home, and a sense of refinement all please Venus's interests. This planet asks us to appreciate the exquisite nature of things. It's a sensual, though not necessarily sexual, world as far as Venus is concerned. Venus takes 225 days to complete its orbit of the zodiac. It's never more than 47 degrees from the sun. It's a feminine energy and it rules both Taurus and Libra in the second and seventh houses. Mars is the planet of passion. Energy, passion, drive, and determination are all up Mars's alley. This planet commands you to stand up, be noticed, and get things done. Mars rules the military, ambition, and competition, stamina. Mars rules our sexuality and sexual energy and governs weapons, accidents, and surgery. It takes nearly two years for Mars to complete its orbit through the Zodiac. It is masculine energy and rules both Aries and Scorpio and the first and eighth houses. Jupiter is the planet of luck. I actually have the Jupiter symbol on my left ring finger. Jupiter is the thinking person's planet. As the guardian of the abstract mind, this planet rules higher learning and bestows upon us a yen for exploring ideas, both intellectually and spiritually. Intellectually speaking, Jupiter assists us in formulating our ideology. In the more spiritual realm, Jupiter lords over religions and philosophy. A search for the answers is what Jupiter proposes, and if it means spanning the globe to find them, that's probably why Jupiter also rules long-distance travel. In keeping with this theme, Jupiter compels us to assess our ethical and moral values, and it also addresses our sense of optimism. Luck and good fortune are associated with Jupiter for good reason. This is a kind and benevolent planet one that wants us to grow and flourish in a positive way. Jupiter may be judge and jury, but it's mostly an honorable helpmate seeing to it that we're on the right path. While our success, accomplishments, and prosperity are all within Jupiter's realm, this can at times deteriorate into laziness and sloth. So Jupiter also focuses on leisure time, sports of all kinds, games of chance, nature, animals, and great wealth. It takes Jupiter about 12 years to circle the zodiac, The planet visits an average of one sign a year. It is a masculine energy and rules both Sagittarius and Pisces in the 9th and 12th houses. Saturn is the planet of karma. Saturn commands us to get to work and to work hard. It seems like none of these signs want to work anymore. Discipline and responsibility are important to this planet. Time management, restrictions, discipline, I already said discipline, yada yada yada. Learning life's lessons is key to this planet in keeping with its role as a teacher. The majesty of older age also brings with it a certain sense of tradition, conventionality, wisdom. This planet applauds our perseverance and the fact that we've withstood the test of time. Saturn also brings with it a measure of authority. Structure, order, and the way in which we conduct our affairs are all ruled by this planet. Contraction and the reigning of assets are also important here. And lastly, Saturn, again, in its role as the teacher, concerns itself with karma and the lessons which past experiences might bring. It takes Saturn 28 to 30 years to complete its orbit of the Zodiac. It is masculine energy and rules both Capricorn and Aquarius in the 10th and 11th houses. So we talked about the Saturn theory in the 28 or the 27 club, sorry. Because we talked about the 28-year situation from the time that you're, like, conceived to your 27th year. And, like, from 27 to 30 is supposed to be, like, a really tricky time for people. So I thought that was interesting. Uranus, or Uranus, is the planet of rebellion. So it moves rather slowly through the zodiac. The result is that its effect is felt more generationally than individually. Uranus brings with it a new way of looking at things, and its approach is best met with an expanded consciousness. Originality, inventions, computers, cutting-edge technologies, and future events are all ruled by this planet. Uranus sees no need for the status quo. While the building blocks of science and electricity are safe here, this planet would rather focus its gaze on a new world order. Dun dun dun! To that end, rebellion, revolution, dictators, and autonomous state, and free will all fall under this planet. Freedom and creativity are important to this planet. Astrology is also held within this realm. Sometimes violent and often unexpected, Uranus rules earthquakes and other natural disasters. It takes Uranus 84 years to complete its trip around the zodiac. It's an androgynous energy, love that, and rules Aquarius and the 11th house. Uranus is considered to be the higher octave of Mercury and the first of the transcendental planets. Neptune is the planet of illusion, another planet that moves slowly and affects generations, changeable and illusory in nature. So dreams, illusion, abstract thought, and the mysterious are all governed by Neptune. Our spirituality is important to this planet and how we harness that energy for our personal betterment. Neptune invites us to let its energy wash over us and to use a meditative state to gain insights and heightened awareness. Poetry, music, and dance are among the trance-like activities which this planet favors. It rules movie, television, theater, fashion, and all forms of glamour. Neptune has a mystique that doesn't reveal itself easily. When the lights are low, this planet plays in another world of drugs, alcohol, trances, and hypnosis. Neptunian energy reeks of escapism on its darker days, a sea of delusion, hypochondria, and abnormality. Sleep and dreams are also lorded by this planet. So it takes Neptune 165 years to complete its whirl around the zodiac, spending roughly 14 years at each sign. It's a feminine energy and rules Pisces in the 12th house. Neptune is known as the higher octave of Venus and is the second of the transcendental planets. Finally, we have Pluto, which is the planet of power. So this planet is about transformation, regeneration, and rebirth. Pluto says, out with the old and in with the new. And basically it's like, I don't care if you're ready or not, here I come. Pluto asks us to transcend that which we know, redeem ourselves in the process, and come out stronger as a result. I'm getting Tower vibes. For all that Pluto recreates, it also governs the reproductive system it loves to destroy. So this planet rules destruction, death, obsession, kidnapping, coercion, viruses, and waste. Pluto also governs crime and the underworld along with many forms of subversive activity such as terrorism and dictatorships. This planet is about all that is secret and undercover, that which is hidden from view. It takes Pluto approximately 248 years to complete its orbit around the Zodiac. Due to the eccentricity of its orbit, it takes this planet between 12 and 31 years to pass through a sign. It rules Scorpio and the 8th house. Pluto is the last of the transcendental planets and is the higher octave of Mars. So all of that was from astrology.com and I just kind of like picked and choose um, to kind of, th- that was me like summarizing the planets from what they had to offer. So next let's talk about retrogrades. And I got this information from Alina Alive. Um, she has a YouTube channel where she posts meditations and astrology information. And also I have her astrological planner that has like all the full moons and the new moons and the retrogrades and like all the different astrological events throughout the year. I would recommend it. It's pretty cool. So according to Alina Alive, the term retrograde means that from the vantage point of us on Earth, a planet will appear to be spinning backwards. There's always at least one planet in retrograde about 80% of the year, and retrograde planets spark internal dialogue and deep introspection specific to the planet in retrograde and the sign it is transiting. This generally shows up through the retrograde shaking up our normal day-to-day lives. So we always hear about Mercury in retrograde, but... I think a lot of people might not know that all the planets go into retrograde. We just only ever hear about Mercury because that's like the big deal. So when Mercury is in retrograde, we need to slow down and bring intentionality, become more present and back up your computers or online storage because miscommunication and technical difficulties are bound to happen. When Venus is in retrograde, treat any relationship issues as important lessons that need to be learned and not brushed off. Be more conscious of spending habits and hold space for creativity. When Mars is in retrograde, avoid making new plans, release, and rewrite past negative experiences to guide yourself forward. When Jupiter is in retrograde, you need to remember that it's about the journey and not the destination. Realign with your intuition. When Saturn is in retrograde, it's easy to feel burnt out. You'll notice a lack of boundaries and self-control, so reflect on efficiency of your routines, structures, schedules, and relationships. When Uranus is in retrograde, wake up to where your ego is attached and limiting your personal growth. Take advantage of an objective perspective. When Neptune is in retrograde, detach from ego and become more connected to one another and the universe, so reflect on how you interact with others and implement healthy boundaries. When Pluto is in retrograde, explore how your subconscious mind works and your objectives in the realm of power, pleasure, death and renewal. So coming up Oh, actually currently we are Saturn is in retrograde in Aquarius and this will end on October 22nd of this year 2022. Neptune is also currently in retrograde in Pisces ending December 3rd, 2022. And Jupiter will go into retrograde in Aries and Pisces July 28th and will end on November 23rd, 2022. And then our next Mercury retrogrades are September 9th through October 2nd in Libra and Virgo. And again, December 29th to January 1st of 2023 in Capricorn. So just prepare. Now I'm going to explain what the houses are to you. And like, I love astrology. But there's just so much that goes into it. So I am not like super educated on all of it. So some of this, like I didn't really know anything about the houses. So this is new to me. Um, Hopefully it's beneficial to you guys. So each astrological, oh, I got this from astrostyle.com. And each astrological birth chart is divided into 12 different sections known as houses. Each astrological house defines areas of your life, your horoscope, or planetary transit refers to. The 12 houses of the zodiac flow counterclockwise in a 360-degree circle, and it starts at like the 9 o'clock point. The first houses are personal. According to astrostyle.com, they rule our private and immediate lives, individuality, our daily environments, our siblings and peers, our parents, and our attempts to define and express who we are. The last six houses are interpersonal. So they govern relationships, joint ventures, travel, career, society, spirituality, and even our transition at the end of life. And this was a question that I had. I wasn't sure because when I look at my birth chart, I only see like six specific houses. And it turns out that you do have all 12 houses in your birth chart. Everyone does, but you just might not have a planet in each of them. And I guess the planets being in them makes it more prevalent in your life. So the first house is in Aries, and this relates to first impressions, the self and appearance, leadership, new initiatives, fresh starts, and beginnings. The sign on the cusp or starting edge of this house is referred to as your rising sign or ascendant. The second house is in Taurus, and this relates to all matters related to your immediate material and physical environment. So taste, smells, sound, touch, sights. The second house also rules income, money, and self-esteem. The third house is in Gemini, and this represents all forms of communication. Talking, thinking, gadgets, and devices. Think Mercury. The third house also covers siblings, neighborhoods, local travel, libraries, schools, teachers, and community affairs. The fourth house is in Cancer, and this sits at the very bottom of the zodiac wheel and thus rules the foundation of all things. This includes your home, privacy, your basic security, your parents, particularly your mother, children, your own mothering abilities, nurturing, and TLC. The fifth house is in Leo, and this is ruled by Dramatic Leo, and it governs self-expression, drama, creativity, color, attention, romance, fun, and play. The sixth house is in Virgo, the domain of health and service, so it rules schedules, organization, routines, fitness, diet and exercise, natural and healthy living, helpfulness, and being of service to others. The seventh house is in Libra, and this relates to the sector of relationships and other people. It governs all partnerships, both business and personal, and relationship-associated matters like contracts, marriage, and business deals. The eighth house is in Scorpio, and this is a mysterious sector that rules birth, death, sex, transformation, mysteries, merged energies, and bonding at the deepest level. The 8th house also rules other people's property and money. The ninth house is in Sagittarius, and this relates to the higher mind, expansion, international and long-distance travel, foreign languages, inspiration, optimism, publishing, broadcasting, universities, and higher education, luck, risk, adventure, gambling, religion, philosophy, morals, and ethics. If that does not sum me up, I don't know what does. The 10th house is in Capricorn. The very top and most public part of the chart. So the 10th house governs structures, corporations, tradition, public image, fame, honors, achievements, awards, boundaries, rules, discipline, authority, fathers, and fatherhood. The cusp or border of the 10th house is also called the midheaven, and it clues astrologers into your career path. So that was what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about the 10th house and Capricorn. And so my midheaven is Capricorn, so that's a lot. The 11th house is in Aquarius, and this rules teams, friendships, groups, society, technology, video, and electronic media, networking, social justice, rebellion, and humanitarian causes. It also rules originality, eccentricity, sudden events, surprises, invention, astronomy, science fiction, and all things futuristic. The 12th house is in Pisces, and this is the final house which rules endings. So this house covers the final stages of a project, typing up loose ends, completions, the afterlife, old age, and surrender. It's also associated with separation from society, institutions, hospitals, jails, hidden agendas, and secret enemies. And it rules the imagination, creativity, arts, film, dance, poetry, journals, and the subconscious mind. I want to look at my chart with you guys. So like I said, my sun is in Sagittarius, my moon is in Pisces, and my rising is Aries. So my Ascendant and Saturn are in Aries in the first house. My Mars is in Virgo in the sixth house. So I have only two personal houses and the rest are interpersonal. So my Sagittarius, I have Sun, Pluto, Venus, and Mercury in Sagittarius in the eighth and ninth houses. Neptune is in Capricorn, Uranus is in Aquarius in the tenth house, and then my Moon and Jupiter are in Pisces in the eleventh and twelfth houses. I feel very aligned to my chart. So. On that note, I guess I'll tell you guys some objections to astrology. So ancient objections include the following. Philosophical and academic skeptics such as Cicero, Carneades, Favorinus, Favorinus, and Sextus Empiricus. And I really did look up car- Carneades, Carneades and I couldn't find that anywhere and I found differing things for the, the one that starts with an F. So according to Wikipedia, Carniades argued that belief in fate denies free will and morality, that people born at different times can all die in the same accident or battle, and that contrary to uniform influences from the stars, tribes and cultures are all different. And then Cicero stated the twins' objection, that with close birth times, personal outcomes can still be very different. He argued that since the other planets are much more distant from the Earth than the Moon, they could have only very tiny influence compared to the moon. He also argued that if astrology explains everything about a person's fate, then it wrongly ignores the visible effect of inherited ability and parenting, changes in health worked by medicine, or the effects of the weather on people. I feel like all of that is included in astrology. Like, the parents that you're born with, that's like, that is taken into consideration in the birth chart, I would assume. I don't know. And then, Favornus argued that it was absurd to imagine that stars and planets would affect human bodies in the same way as they affect the tides, and equally absurd that small motions in the heavens cause large changes in people's fates. This is funny to me because this is like my typical argument. I'm always like, if the moon can affect the oceans, then like why can't it and other celestial bodies affect humans, which are largely made up of water? So I thought it was funny that he was like, that's absurd. There wasn't really like a a follow-up to that. He just said it's absurd, so Here are some more modern objections. So according to Wikipedia, there is no proposed mechanism of action by which the positions and motions of stars and planets could affect people and events on Earth that does not contradict basic and well-understood aspects of biology and physics. Those who have faith in astrology have been characterized by scientists, including Bart J. Bach, as doing so in spite of the fact that there is no verified scientific basis for their beliefs and indeed that there is strong evidence to the contrary. Like, okay, yeah, anyways. Um, (laughs) Confirmation bias is a form of cognitive bias, a psychological factor that contributes to belief in astrology. Astrology believers tend to selectively remember predictions that turn out to be true and do not remember those that turn out to be false. Okay, fair. Philosophers who disagree with astrology for various reasons include Karl Popper, Paul Thaggard, Edward W. James, and Thomas Kuhn. Philosopher Thomas Kuhn argues that failures in astronomy could be explained, researched, and corrected, where failures in astrology cannot. Astrology is non-empirical, and, in contrast to scientific disciplines, astrology has not responded to falsification through experiment. To Kuhn, even if the stars could influence the path of humans through life, astrology is not scientific and I agree with that I like that's that's yeah that's valid like okay I agree with that I think that maybe some things in this world are not necessarily scientific I believe in magic like that's like the silly like human way to say it like the material way to say it like I believe in magic but I feel like there's definitely like a greater thing out there I don't personally view astrology as like a religion to me but I know a lot of people do practice astrology very seriously in their life and i don't know if it's like offensive to compare astrology to religion um so if that is offensive i'm sorry but that's just kind of like where my brain buckets it is with like religion and so like yeah we haven't scientifically proven like religion or like god exists you know what i mean so it's like it doesn't have to be science like just let people have something they want to believe in So moving on, astrology has not demonstrated its effectiveness in controlled studies either. So where it has made falsifiable predictions under controlled conditions, they have been falsified. I got all this from Wikipedia too. So there was a famous experiment where 28 astrologers were to match over 100 natal charts to personal profiles, generated in this like agreed upon fashion, like there were scientists and astrologers external to the actual experiment that like they all were like, yes, this is fair go ahead with the experiment. And they found that predictions based on natal astrology were no better than chance and that the testing clearly refutes the astrological hypothesis. There's been other scientific studies with no significant results as well. Um you might have heard of the Mars effect, so there was I can't remember what his name is, but there was a philosopher and scientist who did an experiment where he was trying to see if like people's birth charts and who they are as an adult if their birth charts like I guess aligned with that. And so the planet Mars was seen to be in a lot of the birth charts of like professional athletes. And so that's where the Mars effect came from. But there was a lot of debate with the validity of the experiment saying that like this philosopher purposefully excluded people from the experiment after getting their information. And then other people say that the parents who provided the birth times and locations like tweaked the information to be more favorable because it was performed at a time when astrology was more commonly believed in. So there's a lot of experiments that are out there, but none of them really prove anything, which is which is fine. And I understand that. And that's valid. Cool. I just like astrology because I think it's fun. And I just like to see like the weird coincidences or synchronicities where people do align with what's in their birth chart. So testing the validity of astrology can be difficult because there's no consensus among amongst astrologers as to what astrology is or what it can predict. So this goes back to like, first of all, there's Western astrology, there's Vedic astrology, there's Chinese astrology, and then within that you have like astro psychology or, you know, psychological astrology and horoscopic astrology and decanic astrology and a lot of different kinds of astrology. And then some people might not even know that they need to look at their moon and rising and midheaven. And there's a lot of factors at play and there's not like one consensus, which is another reason that I'm like, I don't really know if we need to be trying to argue that it's scientific, like just let people believe what they want to believe. So in conclusion, I am still a believer in astrology. I, I feel like it's different than believing in something like flat earth because it doesn't really hurt anybody I I can understand that it's not real and still like have fun with it or like entertain the concept like I I don't know I think I just it goes back to me viewing astrology in the same realm as other religions and again I apologize if that's offensive but like I'm sure that there are other people that actually feel that way um, or people who are more involved in the astrology world that would feel that way as well and again maybe I'm wrong, but that's just how I look at it. And so, like with flat earth, I don't really think that's like a religion. Like that's just people being like the earth is flat. This also kind of reminds me of like a lot of the studies that I found in the episode 13 where people were trying to prove whether the number 13 was lucky or unlucky and it was like there weren't really any studies that really could definitively say it was lucky or unlucky or whatever, but there were a lot of like historical in ancient stories that were pointing to it being unlucky. And so while, yes, we can't really prove something yet, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. Where like with flat earth, we've definitely proved that the earth is not flat. Yeah, so I don't know. I think it's interesting to read about and learn about and see how it can apply to my life while also acknowledging that science doesn't really acknowledge it. You know, we haven't figured everything out we're humans in this insanely large and beautiful universe. And I think about this a lot, like the fact that we have figured out so much already. I just think about how we discovered gravity and the laws of physics and like made telescopes and sent things into outer space to see other parts of the universe. Like it's crazy how much we know, but like I also wonder how much of it is not even right or like How much of it do we not even know yet that's going to disprove the science that we know now? Because that happens. Like a lot of things we know now have proven things that we used to know in the past as being incorrect. So what are we going to learn next that's going to negate everything that we know now? It's interesting to think about. Like we're just always trying to figure things out. Just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean that we won't figure it out later. And maybe that's how the flat earthers feel. I don't know. I'm supposed to be skeptical about things, but I'm gonna let myself have this one. I'm gonna let myself believe in astrology and numerology and tarot and the lunar cycle and how it affects us. Like, I like that kind of shit and I think it's interesting. So yeah, maybe one day we'll prove that God and source are real. Well, we know source is real, but like maybe we'll prove We'll have a way to, like, physically prove it through some sort of machine that can, like, detect it. I don't know. Nothing matters in this world except things that bring you joy. So if believing in astrology and the flat Earth (laughs) brings you joy, then believe in astrology. Yeah. Just do what makes you happy. Don't believe in flat Earth. I was kidding about that. Maybe I'm just as delusional. I don't know. Someone let me down easy. Anyways, I love you guys. Please, please, please leave a five star rating. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. Please subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash profskep podcast. You can follow us at profskep podcast. That's at P R O F S K E P podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email me at professional skepticism podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to email me too. I also found this public recording space where I'm going to be doing recordings of people that I'm not necessarily super familiar with and want to invite over to my home. So if you want to be on the podcast, like Ruby wants to be on the podcast so bad right now. She keeps jingling her freaking collar. Now she's mad at me. Then shoot me an email. Okay. I love you guys. Stay sus skeptics I'll see you next week.